0: This is Diver, a podcast about diversity, equity, and inclusion in special education research. I'm your host, Federico Bipolar, Associate Professor at the University of Illinois at Chicago and board member of the Division of Research of the Council for Exceptional Children. Welcome, 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 welcome to Dive In, a podcast about equity, diversity, and inclusion in special education research. A podcast sponsored by the Division of Research of the Council of Exceptional Children. Today we have our episode number 10. 10 is like a magic number. Think of Maradona or Messi. Well, you probably guess where I'm actually originally from for those examples, but we're going to leave that there. But 10 is a magic number, and we're going to celebrate it uh, today. And to do so, we're going to do something special. We are going to talk about issues outside the United States. Today, we're going to talk about what is called the Global South. And to do so, we have an interview with Maya Kalyanpur, a professor in the Department of Teaching and Learning at the University of San Diego. Dr. Kalyanpur was a teacher of children with intellectual disabilities in India, also an international advisor on in inclusive education to the Cambodian Ministry of Education and also have done extensive research all over South Asia. But Dr. Kalempur also have done a lot of research about equity issues in special education in the U.S. as well. I hope you enjoy the interview and learn a lot about what is the Global South and its significance to understanding better how we can include students with disabilities. <laughs> thank you maya kalyanpur to be in our show today we're so happy to have you
1: thank you so much federico for inviting me i'm delighted and honored
0: yeah it's such such a such a uh, great opportunity that we have to to learn a little bit about what's going on outside of the us in terms of inclusive education especially education in terms of equity diversity and inclusion i mean now the first question that i have for you is um can you explain uh To our audience, what is the Global South and what is an important distinction?
1: Okay, that's a good question. Let me briefly explain sort of the historical evolution of the term first, of the term Global South. Um, So I think many people might remember the term Third World. Um, That was something that was often associated with the kind of work that we were doing at that time. um, And that has fallen out of disfavor. So just to explain... So we had the first world, which was basically Western Europe and North America. We had the second world, which was the Soviet bloc, and we had the third world, which was the rest of the world. That were there had basically been former colonies, and so they were struggling; they were not uh, doing very well. As we moved further into sort of the end of uh, uh, colonialism, sort of the formal colonialism, you know, sunsetting on the British Empire kind of thing. Uh, we moved more into an understanding of a continuum where we placed countries on a continuum of development. We had the Human Development Index, for instance. And so we had countries that were developed and countries that were developing or underdeveloped. And so then that's when we moved into, okay, then the third world, when it fell out of disfavor, we started to use terms like developing um, and even less perhaps underdeveloping. And and then over time, I think we've tried to move away from that construct as well, because um, the countries that we expected to move towards development haven't necessarily uh, really achieved those, and we'll talk about that in more detail in uh, uh, later in the interview, I'm sure. Um, and so we have moved away from this uh, continuum of developed, developing, underdeveloped, um, and now we talk more about the global south. And uh, what tends to happen is that there is a binary, a false binary that's been created, global north versus global south. And again, it's very much similar to the uh, the tension that existed in terms of the economics of, of countries. So the countries that had been the colonizers having already developed. And so the global north is often associated most closely with, the, uh, with developed countries and the global south is most uh, often associated with countries that were formerly colonized and are trying to move up along that continuum of development. But that is essentially the, the distinction that's made. So I want to then add to that to say, if we look at those statistics and those economic and social indicators that we use to separate the global north and global south in terms of developed and developing we actually find pockets of development even within the global north. So uh, there are minoritized and marginalized communities within the global north as well. Um, Economic and uh, social indicators for many communities that are marginalized are poor and outcomes are very poor, very similar to the kinds of poor outcomes for people in uh, the Global South. And then in the Global South as well, as development has taken place and we've moved towards neoliberal globalization, there are large pockets of affluent people and very elite um, uh, communities in the Global South who enjoy many of the privilege privileges of the of people in the global north and so I do want to make the distinction that while we use terms like global North and Global South in in geographic as a geographic understanding really what they are is a political construct it's an economic construct and we need to keep that in mind as we use these terms
0: yeah you make a great point so it's not such a tight di- the uh, draconian disti- distinction of like global south, global north, here's the division. No, it's like there is a lot of permeation, right? A lot of uh, uh, movement between those. And I can think like even uh, communities from the global south migrate to the global north and having global south kind of experiences too there. Uh, and it was, it was interesting. It made me feel a little bit about my childhood because I was born and raised in Argentina. So I was born all my life. I am always here. We are the third world, we're in the third world. This is great because I never knew what the second word was. Uh, so, so now I learned. I always knew there was a first and third. There was always something missing in the middle. So I, I just learned something new. Um, thank you, Maya. And and tell me a little bit how your engagement with the global south has shaped your development as a scholar and your work that you have done in the US. I mean, you have worked with great people like Beth Harry and other people and have produced a a, a, a very robust body of work. How that has been shaped at your your experiences in the Global South?
1: So the first thing is that I am like you from the Global South, very much sort of the third world kind of thing. Um, and I had, um, so I grew up in India and I was a teacher uh, for students with special needs in India. Before I came to the US, uh, mistakenly, I realized now, looking for answers. I hope, I wanted, I wanted to become a better teacher back in India. And so I came here looking for answers. And that is really, so that experience is what shaped what I brought, the lens that I brought when I came to the States, because um, I began to immediately notice what eventually became, in a way, the, the title of a book that um, I wrote, that I co-authored actually with Beth Harry, whom you mentioned a minute ago, um, called The Culture of Special Education. Where I began to see that the way in which we define who is disabled, <clears throat> the kind of services that we provide, all of this is very defined by the culture and uh, the 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 concept that disability itself is a social construction. I I began to see that very early in. Uh, in the work that I was doing, you know, in my in the courses that I was taking. And I started to use that lens in the research that uh, I began to conduct. So, um, you know, way back, the first uh, communities that I began to... So to give you an example, um, I remember uh, our professor saying, group homes were the best thing that happened since sliced bread. Now, I didn't understand that simile. Of sliced bread because that's a very American term, but I I rea- I sort of understood the, the the meaning that was trying to be communicated that group homes were uh, you know an answer to all of the problems uh, for adults with disabilities and I remember thinking that only makes sense within this context in the U.S. where group homes have emerged from institutions and the whole movement towards deinstitutionalization. So that was the history from which group homes were emerging. And I thought, but what about uh, countries like India and other countries within the global south where there was no tradition of institutions? There were no services at all. um, Can we then reject group homes as an option? Or or do we say that's the direction that we go in and we actually create more isolating environments because right now they are uh, within their communities? Are we creating false communities by creating group homes? And so those were some of the tensions that I was beginning to notice. Um, And so I started my work originally actually working with um, culturally and linguistically diverse families within the U.S., to understand how they experienced those differences and how they navigated through this sort of culture of special education, when they might ascribe to very different values. So we talked about, for instance, um, the rights-based—the idea that as parents, you have the right to question, you have the right to demand. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, does that sit easily and well with um, communities and families who um, haven't necessarily seen. Uh, experienced entitlement, um, and don't come in with that uh, stance or that posture of, um, of of demanding. So how would they respond within an IEP meeting? The question of choice, you have so many choices of services and being able to choose. And so, for instance, the um, what can happen in an IEP meeting is that the The professionals are saying, yes, we want you to participate, but the understanding of participation may be very different from the understanding of participation for a a family that has very different values in terms of, do you make demands? Do you say, I have the right to, um, I would like to choose this? Hmm. So. Uh, you know, and so that's what causes the tension very often in IEP meetings within the U.S. And so those were that's what drove some of the work that I did initially with um, a, a, a Native American families, with African American families and Asian American families as I as I continued to do my research over here. And then I went back, to India to do my um, PhD dissertation. I was working with low income families there. And that's when, again, I saw the tension between my own experiences and their experiences and the sense of, um, you know, how, again, the culture had defined their understanding of disability and, and services very differently from the way in which I understood them.
0: Hmm. Interesting. Fascinating. Yeah. And the idea, I mean, some of the things you say made me think, you no, know, the idea of group homes, it's also based on the idea of independence, right? Of being independent and being individual, right? Of being emancipated out of your parents and family as soon as you can, you know? Uh, and some of us may feel about that, about our families, but that's another issue. Uh, but that's a very cultural. Uh, this is a very U.S. cultural thing because maybe in India, uh, people don't want independence. Maybe they want to live more in, in 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 family in communities. Is is that all right?
1: That's that's exactly right. And thank you for bringing that out. That was the fundamental issue. Is that um, you know it's very much a collectivist society and even typical children don't necessarily move out of the family home. The When the son gets married, the bride comes to live with the family. And so if that's not an expectation, and uh, so if that's not an expectation from any child, then why would we understand that a child with special needs needs to be in a sense, you might almost say pushed out of the home Mm-hmm. into a group home. And so that was one of our first concerns. The other was also in terms of work. Um, you know, work was being defined as work that you did, that was valued, that you got paid for, that you did outside the house. And again, we came from, um, and when I say we, I I I mean uh, Dr. Beth, Harry, and me. Um, we came from cultures where, A, um, there were so many, Uh, poor people themselves who are out of jobs. And so were there positions available for the children of affluent families who were looking for ways in which they could be occupied? And so did we want them to be, you know, earning something outside of the house? What were the ways in which it could be done? Um, And so those were, yes, some of the concerns. And over time, with the work that I was doing, for instance, I noticed that what parents in India want Is a job where both their whether it's their son or their daughter is safe, more so perhaps for their daughter, but as much for their son. So they were always looking for connections within the community that they engaged with to help them to find a place where their son could be employed. So they would talk to somebody who owned a small business or maybe worked in a in a company or something and said, you know, can you? create a job for my son where he could work he needs a little bit of uh, help he needs some modifications he needs some accommodations but on the whole you know he this is where he could be it's also related to caste um in in india that you want to you want people to be working at a caste level at which they are and so there's an issue in terms of occupation for girls, the question was, can we find something to keep her op- occupied while she is working from home? Because that mm. we see as being the safest place for her to work, and so perhaps starting a beauty salon, or um, may, you know maybe she's uh, uh, she she does piecework for a garment industry, things like that. So that becomes a way in which they see independence for the child, uh, rather than sending them out of the house and uh, into into the you know what we might see within the US as the community yes hmm.
0: fascinating you know we've been getting already on some of these issues but i wonder if you can identify or tell us about more differences between the global south and the US in terms of approach uh, uh, in terms of including students with disabilities
1: okay so here i feel the biggest um the biggest difference really and yet in a sense a similarity is that Um, international aid organizations have been very instrumental in setting the agenda for inclusion in the global south. The interesting thing is that they have looked to the global north and identified the direction in which development for inclusion occurred and used that as the template, as it were. So they said um, they looked at uh, inclusion. They looked at mainstreaming, integration, all of those terms that we used to use before. And they said, this is what we need to do in the Global South. And so you had the Salamanca Statement, you had mm-hmm. the UNCRPD, which is the United Nations Convention on the Rights of People with Disabilities, which again defines what, um, what inclusion looks like. And so the Global South has really been pressured in many ways to follow that path um, and that template. And I feel what has happened is that that has not recognized the local context within the Global South for how development has taken place. There is this assumption that development must look the same. So it's all about, you know, uh, democracy, um, human rights, uh, capitalism those are sort of the 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 trinity, the holy trinity of, yeah. uh, of development as it were. And that's the direction that people are encouraged to go in, in. And and so that's why then you have these policies and these standards of what inclusion should be. But it makes it very difficult when you don't necessarily share the same history. The example that I gave of group homes, for instance, group homes emerged from a history of institutions, which which again fell out of favor. You moved into deinstitutionalization and group homes became a very viable option. Well, they're not necessarily a viable option um, within countries where there weren't institutions or their viable options in very different ways because there are no institutions at all. And the same thing might happen in terms of inclusion. So really beginning to recognize how does the community function? What are the values within the community? How is disability uh, uh, seen and understood within the communities is something that needs to be taken into account. Um, I'll give you a, 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 an interesting example from a study that was done by Hussein and Sanders, and I forget their last name, Hmm. Um, but this is about um, work that they were doing with uh, children um, on the prosthetic devices, the legs that they needed um, uh, in in Cambodia. And they asked the children, what was the kind of prosthetic leg that they would would benefit from? So they were trying to sort of co-design this with, with children and the children uh, explained that what what that the prosthetic devices that they got right now didn't make it possible for them to climb trees and the authors said their first reaction to that was oh yes they want to play with their friends and this is making it difficult for them to play mm-hmm. and as they questioned them more they began to realize it's got nothing to do with play. The children already knew that because they already had a, a, you know, this prosthetic leg, that they were going to be precluded from play. Their point that was that these legs that they had were not built for their needs, and they did not allow them to participate in contributing to the family income. So it mm. didn't allow them to work. It was a whole different take on the purpose of that prosthetic device prosthetic device and then the what they did with the with this conversation is they co-designed a prosthetic leg that was much more suitable then towards this outcome that the that the children saw as being more important and that's what i mean by understanding the context understanding how do you include uh, children within the global south is really understanding what are the values and the the in a sense allowing the indigenous knowledge to emerge, so that then what we create is much more in tune with what makes sense within those communities and those societies.
0: That is great. It, it, what I get to from it, it's like you need to really get that emic perspective. You really need to get to the meaning of those people, not just you know big concepts like inclusion, but also like tools, like a prosthetic legs, right? Or any other tool that you're gonna to present to favor inclusion, it may be interpreted and may mean enough in very different ways and may be wanted to be used in, in different, more ingenious ways. Uh, that's that's fascinating. Um, you know, you, you have done a lot of work in India. Uh, and I'm, I'm curious, can you tell us a little bit about what are the most pressing issues when it comes to students with disabilities there?
1: So the first issue is the issue of access, is just getting students with disabilities services, whether it's inclusive education, whether it's special education, rehabilitation services. Um, All of the reports that have come out, all of the research that's come out has shown that for one, part of the problem is that in India, there are large groups of the children who are marginalized anyway. We have girls, we have Dalits, we have Muslims, we have poor children. So in a sense, it's instead of the sort of the minority over-representation in special education, we actually have a majority under-representation is an argument that I've made in one of my papers. And so we're struggling with the fact that there are more people out of school than there are in school in many ways. And then reports have shown that children with disabilities are the last group to be included to receive services. So Mm. access is a huge issue and that is one of the problems. But what I've also noticed is that as we've moved towards education for all and we are now trying to provide services for all of the children. In India, who have been historically uh, deprived of these services, we are actually leading in a direction that may not be necessarily responsive or healthy for these these communities and these groups. Um, what I'm noticing, for instance, and 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 I think let me let me uh, sort of pin, put a pin on that thought. I think that part of the reason, and this goes back to the previous question, is because we haven't questioned enough some of the assumptions that we brought. When we talked about inclusion, when we talked about schooling and we uh, imported almost large scale, whole scale structures from the West. So the way in which schooling takes place for instance that children need to be in this uh, in of a certain age are in a grade a certain grade for a whole year there's an exam that takes place there's a curriculum schools are buildings that students come to so there are certain structures about schooling that we have just adopted and i'm not necessarily sure if they make sense Within the the cultures that they've been adopted into, now I understand that we're too far gone. We can't go back, and we start dismantling those structures. But I think that if we start to, to assume, if we start to question that assumption of whether that makes sense, that might help us a little bit. And so, to get back to the to the point that I started with, is that so one of the um, the, the directions that we're going in that I see as being crumbling. Is that as we're trying to accommodate all of these children who have been um left out of the educational system, we are accommodating them in a school system that was not necessarily built for them and built with them in mind. It was built for affluent people who could afford to go to school, who knew English. Um, you know, and 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 could afford to postpone not earning money at a very early age. Uh-huh. And you know, so the economic dividends of going to school and going to college before they start to earn. So all of those structures haven't been taken into account as we've created these educational systems for students who are now being pushed into these systems that don't necessarily work for them. And so in the most recent study that I did, the most for, for me, the most troubling direction that I that I see emerging is that under this guise of education for all, what we're actually doing is we're creating a new group of marginalized students, students that we're calling learning disabilities, this learning disabled, and they're being pushed out of the system. So on one hand, we have this education for all mm-hmm. uh, slogan and this effort to bring everybody in, and because the systems don't necessarily respond to these very different needs that these groups have we're actually ending up then creating a whole new group of students who are going to be pushed out of the system and and and, and so we're not i don't think we're answering um the call for inclusive education by doing this if we don't question the direction that we're going in
0: wow fascinating some things made me rant the US i mean some things are completely different, but for example, the idea that you create, you know, you have an initiative or a policy to include students with disabilities, let's say in the U.S., the Education for all Handicap act, but ended up actually being a separate system that really didn't change anything on the school system, right? We just have a separate system. We deal with the, the issue of exclusion at that moment by creating a separate system uh, rather than changing the main problem, which was how skilled schools you know set up participation how school thinks about learning how how uh, schools um uh think about what a student should be right uh very yeah very fascinating um do you think there are some lessons learned there on the global South that we can bring out and learn in the U.S
1: so that's an interesting question, because usually this question gets quite... Uh, uh, yes, exactly. It's the opposite. It gets for, the, for our audience, <laughs> it's just
0: like, I get a gesture with my hand saying like, it's the opposite, right? I always think, oh, what we can learn from the U.S. But I think there's some lessons learned from the Global South that that we could be incorporating. And I think you have some insights on that.
1: And I think that... Um... And and before I go into what can the U.S. learn from the the Global South, I would like to say I hope that the Global South, when it um, when it hears scholars saying the kind of things that I'm saying, that um, they will sort of uh, that that scholars and practitioners will begin to believe in themselves and Mm -hmm. recognize that there that there is a wealth of knowledge within the Global South that needs to emerge, that needs to come out and and that systems and services should really be built on that knowledge rather than bringing in um, what is happening in the West because what is happening in the West is not applicable to a large extent within the context in which Global South practitioners and scholars work in. So I want to put that out there for for people in the Global South to understand. But I also think then in, in the same way, the the US needs to understand then that it doesn't have the answers. That in many ways the educational systems that have been set up are broken and don't mm. respond to the needs of students who have also in the US been historically marginalized. And it needs to use that lens of what can we do differently. Now there are many um scholars of color, um, um uh, uh, scholars with disabilities who are, uh, you know, engaging in uh, understanding uh, anti-ableism and inclusive educational models within the U.S. And they're bringing their lens to to say, yes, this is what didn't work for me. And so this might be a different way of looking at it. And I think that's the scholarship that really needs to be brought out and embraced because that is recognizing ways in which these different values the interactions and the and the relationships that teachers and students have had traditionally in these pockets these global south pockets within the us those are the aspects that need to be brought out and that whole educational system the concept of standardized testing for instance there's something so fundamentally wrong with it we know that tests and IQ tests are um, are culturally biased. Moving away from that is a way to assess students' genius, really. Um, These are things that I feel like the U.S. could learn from this experience and move in ways that would be much more responsive to really the majority of the students within the U.S. and perhaps everybody would benefit. Hmm. All children would benefit.
0: That's fascinating. Thank you so much, Maya. Uh, You know, I always ask all my uh, interviewees two questions. Um, The first one is, uh, what three pieces of advice do you have for special education scholars who wants to foreground equity and justice in their research?
1: Okay, I'm not sure if I have three pieces of advice.
0: (laughs) We'll take any. We're sold.
1: Okay. Okay. How many can we offer? One perhaps one large piece of advice, perhaps. All right.
0: Okay.
1: <laughs> so the I I referred to it a little earlier when I said tap into our own strengths and assets. And I feel like we need to keep in mind the context in which we are working as practitioners and as scholars, recognize the concept of uh, situated analysis, as uh, as Alfredo Artiles mentions, and the nuances within which we are working, and really um, understand perhaps our own intersectionality, our and our own positionality. So, um, what are the ways in which we intersect with the communities that we're working with, but also the ways in which we may not, and be aware of that, and allow. Uh, an opportunity for perhaps a co-construction of these indigenous knowledges. So working with people rather than working on or for um, and and, uh, and, and giving opportunities for these strengths, um, these cultural values, these understandings to emerge so that whatever we recommend, whatever we build from that, is built on that foundational knowledge, on that grounded knowledge of what makes sense within those communities.
0: Thank you, Maya, so much. You know that has been a recurring theme in this podcast. Many uh, of the interviewees that we have here, they have they have said similar things about doing research with communities, utilizing and 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 um, uplifting the the epistemologies and the, and the funds of knowledge of the communities. Uh, It seems like it's such an important pillar for special researchers doing issues of uh, equity and inclusion. Thank you very much for that. Uh, My last question, I will let you go after this, I promise. Uh, Where would you like to see special education research in five years in terms of equity, diversity, inclusion?
1: So, I'm I'm already seeing this and I and I hope that this is a trend that will continue. We are seeing more and more scholars and practitioners um from um Highly marginalized and traditionally marginalized communities now emerging and their voices becoming um, more vocal and more recognized and embraced within uh, the research community. And so I think that this is a good trend because it will definitely give us much more information um, than we ever had. Uh, We'll be able to move away from what was essentially a very mainstream Eurocentric white structure and be able to understand what are the ways in which we can respond to the needs of students who don't necessarily belong to those structures and may ascribe to different values. So I feel that's a a big way in which we need to go. Going back to my point about questioning assumptions, even things like, you know, what do we mean? Questioning assumptions, like what do we mean by equity? What do we mean by diversity? What do we mean by inclusion? So starting off the conversation, by engaging in this kind of dialogue so that we come up with um, a shared understanding before we proceed with conducting research or we uh, identify policies or we develop practices. What is the outcome? What is the way in which we understand? So if group homes don't make sense, if um, mm. you know working outside the home doesn't make sense, what are some structures that would make sense for young adults what are some uh, inclusive ways in which we can operate that would make sense within the community and the and society so really beginning to look at um, uh, you know as i said questioning the assumptions that we come in don't assume that we know anything and, um, you know, almost, I think that some of your other um, uh, guests have also talked about a stance of humility, mm. recognizing that we may not have all of the answers, and being open to what those answers might be from the communities that we're working with. Well, and I think you. that this applies for both, sorry, both for the yeah, Global yeah. South as as the US, yes?
0: Both ways. That's fascinating. Well, thank you so much, Maya. This has been a, a, a wealth of wisdom. Uh, there's so many other questions I may have, but uh, I mean, I, but I think that they merit its own podcast. I was thinking about issues of NGOs and and how they are like a, a, a double-edged sword in the global south. But we'll we'll put a past that in for for another podcast. Um, thank you so much to be uh, with us today, and uh, I wish you best.
1: Thank you so much, Federico. This has been a wonderful opportunity. Bye bye.
0: Thank you for listening to Dive In, a podcast about equity, diversity, and inclusion in special education research. This episode was produced by me, Federico Baitoller, with contributions of Tasia Gonzalez, Kelly Carrero, and Haya Abdelati. I hope you enjoyed the episode and learned as much as I do. Take care, and I see you next time.